Hey y'all, welcome to Common Era, a podcast presented by the Consulate Journal of Ireland in Atlanta. This podcast explores the shared ties between the Republic of Ireland and the American Southeast. And in this episode, we're going to talk about languages, specifically the growing number of minority languages under threat of disappearing from their homeland. According to UNESCO, 97% of the world's population speaks only 4% of all living languages. And we'll hear more about what that means for the Irish language next month from an actress who stars in the 25-year young soap opera, Ross Naroon. But what struck me in my limited undergraduate thesis research on the language was the similarities between Irish and a native language much closer to home for me. Everywhere I've lived, South Carolina, North Carolina, Georgia, Tennessee, each state makes up the historic territory of the Cherokee Nation. And all my life, I've been surrounded by anglicized Cherokee place names, Oconee, Dahlonega, Lake Kiwi, and, well, the state of Tennessee itself. And Yet it's only until I spoke with Dr. Ben Fry and Dr. Misha Becker. They're both linguistics professors at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill that I heard Cherokee spoken in person for the very first time. Dr. Fry is a member of the Eastern Band, a group of Cherokees that remained or returned to North Carolina after the forced removal of the nation to Oklahoma in the mid-1800s. About 200 fluent speakers live today in the mountains of North Carolina, and whether it's creating a Cherokee language interface for Motorola smartphones or sparking a hip-hop collaboration in native schools, Dr. Fry and Dr. Becker are working sunup to sundown on revitalizing the language in the local community here. Here's their story. Cherokee is the only surviving member of the Southern Iroquoian language family. Um, Southern Iroquoian supposedly diverged from the rest of Iroquoian, Northern Iroquoian, uh, around 4,000 years ago. So the degree of core lexical similarity um, between Cherokee and, say, Seneca or Cayuga, Mohawk, Oneida, Onondaga, Tuscarora um, is somewhere between 19 and 24 percent. So it's definitely not mutually intelligible, but if you speak Cherokee, you can sort of hear some familiarities and make out a couple of words. So their word for a uh, human being or person is ongwe, and ours is yangwe. So uh, you can kind of hear uh, the similarity there. And uh, they also say ozira for fire, and we say adzila or adzila. So they're clearly related languages, but definitely not mutually intelligible. And the Northern Iroquoian uh, languages are spoken um, on the border of the United States and Canada, and um, also some in um, Wisconsin near Green Bay, the Oneida Nation is up there. We've gone by a couple of names. Cherokee is supposedly derived from either a Muscogee Creek word, meaning people who speak a different language, or um, a Choctaw word that means people who live in caves, either um, Chiloki or Chilukbi. And we called ourselves originally uh, Anigadu-Wagi, which means people of Gadua. And Gadua is the first Cherokee town, the mother town, that's located uh, about 15 minutes outside Bryson City, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. 
Um, today, in fact, we're celebrating the movement of uh, Gadua, the, the land that the town was on, into trust status um, with the federal government. So it's protected now, which is really good. Cool. So we called ourselves Anigaduwagi. People also have said Aniyawiya, um, which they say means the real people. Um, my interpretation is that it means something more like the kind of people most frequently seen around a particular area, i.e. us. And um, then they also say Anitsalagi, which is just the word Cherokee, sort of Cherokee-ized. And yeah, the Cherokee had a thriving culture for a very long time, uh, mostly in um, what's now North Carolina, um, Georgia, uh, so Northern Georgia, Eastern Tennessee, Western North Carolina. And, um, and then, and in the 1800s, they developed their own writing system. Um, it's one of the few cases that we know of, of just sort of a spontaneous development of a, of a writing system in modern times, um, which is really exciting. And, uh, Actually, within just a few years of the development of the writing system, um, the whole community be was literate. They were fully literate. They had their own uh, newspaper that was printed in their language. And um, yeah, it was really, it was pretty cool. Um, and then, of course, uh, the, um, the United States government um, forced them to, to move. The, the great, you know, the Trail of Tears uh, occurred and... Um, Men, and really, it wasn't just the Cherokee, but it was any um, Native Americans who were living sort of east of the Mississippi were forced to move um, to Indian, what was called Indian Territory. It's now the state of Oklahoma. And so a lot of the Cherokee um, uh, people who lived in what is now North Carolina and those areas uh, moved west to Oklahoma. Um, some stayed behind and the, and um, and some people came back. Some people moved to Oklahoma and then decades later moved back. Um, and so the, the dialect of Cherokee that's spoken today in Western North Carolina is actually slightly different from the dialect that's spoken in Oklahoma. They're mutually intelligible, but there are some interesting linguistic differences between them. Um, but the numbers of speakers are dwindling. So in Western North Carolina, I believe there's only around 200 or possibly fewer than 200 um, fluent speakers of the language today. So that's a really small number um, in a community of about 16 to 18,000 uh, people. So it's a very small percentage. Well, obviously it was robustly spoken just after European contact and really on up um for quite a bit longer than I think most people would estimate, we see a dramatic reduction in the number of speakers starting around the 1950s. So um, a UNC Chapel Hill study by John Gulick finds that um, over half the speakers of the Big Cove Township and the on the Kuala Boundary and the Eastern Band speak Cherokee on a daily basis, whether by familial um, consensus or by individual preference. And so after the 1950s, we see the sharp decline really starting to um, become more precipitous. Why the 50s, do you think? Well, uh, according to my research, it is really connected to institutional ties. And the institutional ties sort of generate different kinds of social networks. So when people are oriented through their jobs, through their shopping, 
through uh, restaurants and businesses, um, and, and a lot of these things by necessity toward the external society more so than their native community or their local community, um, their social ties begin to sort of break up at the internal level and they, they face outward more frequently. And so when you need to speak somebody else's language to get paid and put food on the table, then that's where the rubber kind of hits the road, right? Sure, yeah. So it became about that. It became, uh, like you said about Irish, kind of avoiding poverty, right? And mm -hmm. poverty put in place by the colonizer. Um, mm -hmm. Because um, it was also around the 30s to the 50s that the tourist industry really began to pick up in Western mm -hmm. North Carolina after the lumber industry declined. Mm -hmm. um, and so basically the forests had been nearly clean cut. The mountains had been um, sheared off more so in Kentucky than North Carolina. But um, by that point, people were looking for other sources of income than forestry and lumber. And so they began to turn to tourism because it was also after the opening of the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Mm -hmm. And uh, the tribe actually made a bid to have Highway 19 cut through the tribe to um, put tourists on the path through Cherokee so that they could go and visit Cherokee um, before they went to the national park. No, I'm curious. Um, I had read a little bit about this, but what is your background with the language? Well, um, I'm a citizen of the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians. I was brought up in Birmingham, Alabama, because my mother left um, the Koala boundary when she was 14 to escape some sort of bad family circumstances. And um, I was raised in Alabama. I still had family on the Koala boundary. My Two of my uncles and my aunt um, lived there when I was growing up. So I always knew where we came from. I always knew that, you know, we were Cherokees and things like that. And um, after I started learning German in high school, I decided that this language thing was really engrossing, really um, enthralling. I loved language learning and uh, thought it was a lot of fun. So I decided that um, maybe this was my gift, you know, and my mom had always said, if, if you have a gift, you should use it to help people. And I, I figured what better group of people to try to help than my own nation. Um, so I asked if I could go live with my uncle for the summer and start learning Cherokee. And mom said, of course. And it just so happens that our cousins, Eddie and Jean Bushyhead, um, are in charge of the Cherokee language program on the Kuala Boundary. Uh, so their father, Robert Bushyhead, was the consultant um, to Bill Cook's linguistics dissertation in 1979, and he had passed on by then, but he passed down some materials um, through Gene and Eddie, and um, that was where I got my start, and I sort of rearranged the materials that I got from him into um, an honors thesis in linguistics at UNC Chapel Hill, uh, finished there in 2005. And then um, I worked with Tom Belt, who's a fluent speaker from Oklahoma uh, and did a master apprentice program with him over the summer. And we spent 45 hours speaking nothing but Cherokee. Um, so it was like 45 contact hours and we just tried to do pure immersion as much as possible. And that's kind of where I got conversational. And for the next probably 10 years, I kept coming back every summer to try to learn as much as I could from, from the elders in the community while I was getting my uh, PhD in Germanic linguistics at UW-Madison. 
I really, I, I hate that my Cherokee is so much worse than my German though. Hmm. Uh, even still to this day, I've, I've been working on it since 2005 or so, maybe even 2003 I started. Um, and I still am not at the level I want to be at. I still hmm. am not as conversational as I want to be. Um, I can certainly use it, but um, you, you have fewer chances for immersion. You have fewer chances to practice. Um, you have to overcome a lot of the sort of intergenerational trauma things like um, fear of speaking, fear of disappointing your ancestors, your family. Um, you know, I've, I still freeze up in front of elders and native speakers because it's uh, challenging to get over your own emotional turmoil, so to speak, especially when it's something so meaningful. <laughs> Dr. Fry had actually been my student when I first started teaching at UNC. So back in 2002, um, I started teaching at UNC and he took my language acquisition class and he um, was a great student, of course. And then he left UNC and went to graduate school and uh, got his PhD. And then he came back to UNC in, I wanna say 2012 or 13, something like that as a postdoctoral fellow. And when he came back to campus, I, I saw him at a, a function and I was so happy to see him. And so we reconnected and we were, you know, started talking. And um, right around that time, I started teaching a course on bilingualism, which is actually not my area of expertise, but I, students were interested in it. And so I started teaching a class on it. And I was interested in how, um, not only how you learn two languages in your input at once, but I was interested in how that potentially differs if you if one of your languages is in the process of um, becoming endangered. And so I started talking with Ben and we just sort of started collaborating. And so we applied for a grant from, um, uh, let's see, the Endangered, Lang uh, Endangered Language Fund, I believe it was called. And um, so we got this small grant to do a project with the folks in Cherokee. And so we went out there and we, um, we met people and we, we invited them to Chapel Hill. We gave a little workshop on bilingual education. And that was, that was sort of the beginning of my involvement. Now tell me a little bit more about Dahl's project when you went to Cherokee. And I had read that you'd done some work on creating bilingual signs for businesses and different ways for customers to be able to interact in Cherokee. That's fascinating. Yeah, we did that. So, so part of our, part of our um, activity over there was really just talking with the teachers at the school and trying to encourage them to use as much Cherokee language as possible during the school day. Um, we also brought a hip hop artist with us on several occasions and he tried to get the, the students to be creative in creating hip hop music in, in the Cherokee language. That was really fun. Um, because one of, you know, one of the things we know about the success of minority languages that are sort of 
um, reversing the, the downward shift and they're sort of becoming stronger is that a lot of it has to do with how, how much the language is represented in popular culture. How much did this, not just even the children, but the youth, how much do youth and adolescents see the language as being relevant for them? And so we wanted to um, sort of bring in this element of, you know, how can, how can I make the language meaningful to me as a, as a, you know, a Cherokee 11 year old or 12 year old. Um, but then, yeah, another part of it is just how do you get, how do you make the language more visible in the community? And so that was where we um, had the idea of coming up with these little conversation cards and we dropped some off at hotels and um, shops and, you know, places where people would come in. And um, our suggestion was just that, you know, the, the customer and the the person working there could use the card. They would have the the phrases written in Cherokee in a way that you could read it even if you didn't read the Cherokee alphabet um, or syllabary rather, um, but also the meaning so you knew what you were saying. And, um, and you could sort of have this little mini conversation without even needing to know the language fluently. Um, yeah, so that was that was neat. And we, we also brought out some, um, you know, those like, I think they're called sandwich boards that cafes will sometimes have outside of their business saying they're like daily specials or whatever. Um, so we gave some of those to some businesses hoping that they would use them to write messages in Cherokee um, just to, to raise the visibility of the language because I think that's an important piece of it too. You do have some of the road signs are in Cher or they're bilingual, right? Yes, yes, the road signs are bilingual um, and that's a really wonderful, wonderful feature. Um, and yeah, you will see like a sign on a building that's in Cherokee. So there, there is some visibility, um, but it's not really, it's not really used a lot. So the conversation cards, if they're used, that's the other part of it. You have to get people to like actually use them. Um, but then that sort of allows the language to be heard um, on the street or just in everyday interactions, which is, um, which is important because if you don't read the Cherokee syllabary and you see a sign it it doesn't mean anything to you so it's it's kind of it's nice but it's almost like um it's like art you know it, it's like seeing a, a work of art it's not it's not using language to communicate if you don't if you don't know it sure well the most recent things i've been working on um have involved machine translation and computational linguistics sort of oriented tools. Um, I've been working with Dr. Mohit Bonsal in the Department of Computer Science at UNC Chapel Hill um, and uh, graduate student Xie Yue Zhang. Um, and we've entered a corpus of parallel texts, um, you know, I aligned some kind of corpus of 11,000 lines or so and we've been getting as much data from other translated texts as we can so that we can kind of build our own automatic translation engine. Really, I was just kind of looking for meta-learning strategies to hack my way into better language learning of Cherokee uh, to see if I could study frequency effects. Like, can I figure out what the 1500 most frequently occurring words are in the language so that I can focus on those? And, um, <laughs> you know, people like Benny Lewis um, and Gabriel Weiner, uh, Benny Lewis wrote a book called Fluent in Three Months, and Gabe Weiner wrote one called Fluent Forever. And they talk about this idea that if you can learn the 
thousand most frequently occurring words in the language, it can get you 80% of daily conversation. And I thought, well, that's cool. Let me grab those in Cherokee. But the problem is right now we have no idea what they are because nobody's built a corpus of day-to-day -day spoken Cherokee. Um, so we have literature, but, um, you know, so that's one of the things I've been working on. It's like, got to come up with this frequency list somehow. Wow. So what was the shortcuts? Not quite. <laughs> yeah, the shortcut involves a lot of work on the front end. <laughs> You know, as it seems like most things in programming, oh, I'll just write a programming uh, program to do this simple thing that I want to do. And writing the program takes way longer than it would have been just to do the thing. Everybody else can thank you, though. Yeah, well, and that's that seems to have been the trajectory of my career, right? Because when I was starting to learn the language, I didn't have any of the materials that I saw widely available for major world languages like German or French or Spanish. Uh, because they just didn't exist. And so one of the things I've been trying to pursue the whole time I've been working on this language is to try to produce them. Um, so I'm also working on some kind of textbook for L2, you know, second language learners of, of Cherokee that's done according to the communicative language teaching approach uh, using modern pedagogical techniques and um, the sort of latest and greatest in language learning research. Mm -hmm. We have an immersion school in North Carolina and we have an immersion school in Oklahoma. And um, I think both of them only go up to sixth grade. So they're K through six. And after that, we haven't moved forward with um, an entire high school curriculum, partially because it's just so difficult to get materials, you know, um, and translation of complex texts like um, early novels um, mm -hmm. are, are really time consuming. So uh, Myrtle Driver Johnson translated Charlotte's Web a couple of years ago, and uh, we had cooperation from the E.B. White estate and all that kind of stuff. Um, but it took three years to get the mm -hmm. translation fully done. And Myrtle's an excellent translator. It has nothing to do with, um, you know, her in, in any way. She's no slacker, um, but it's just a very difficult process. Sure. And so that was one of the reasons that I hoped to add something with this machine translation stuff because mm -hmm. I thought, well, maybe it'll be possible to um, bootstrap new translations using all the work that our speakers have done in the past with old translations. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And then, you know, of course we know that Google Translate or some kind of machine translation tool is never going to do as good a job as uh, a native speaker will, but maybe it could give us a first pass on something mm -hmm. which could then be tweaked by second language learners which could then be passed on for proofreading by first language speakers. And then we could build that into the database and, and sort of have it create a virtuous cycle, so to speak. So I did complete the Motorola project and um, the first models I believe are out and um, you can do the whole phone experience from opening up the box to booting it up and all the way through in Cherokee if you want to. So um, that I, I think is, progress. I hope uh, people will like it and use it. What would you say some of the greatest challenges are in terms of revitalizing the language? You can code switch, you can switch between your languages. It doesn't, there's nothing negative about that. Um, the, the critical thing for an endangered language though is that if you move too far over into the non-endangered language, the majority language, and you use the endangered language less and less, your facility with it will, can over time weaken. 
And um, yeah, so it's sort of, that's sort of what presents the ongoing challenge is like getting people to keep up their use of the language. What we observed in the school was that the little kids, so up until about third grade, they were great. Like they would just, they would just speak in Cherokee. But as soon as you got into the slightly older kids, so grades four, five, six, they really started to gravitate towards English. And so I think there's this, that's also where the popular culture piece comes in because around that age, you start to be more influenced by music and um, what you see in social media and so forth on TV. And, um, and so having the language, having the Cherokee language being something that those kids are still gonna see and hear around them is gonna be critical, I think, to, to getting them to, to continue using it. And also just having their, their friends continue using it. I mean, there's, there's a lot to be said for just that social pressure, uh, right? You wanna talk like your friends. You, um, and so, yeah, it's, it's interesting, but it's true. The little kids, they were amazing. They, they just spoke in Cherokee all the time. I think that's a big factor. I mean, I think representation matters more than a lot of people would assume. And because we are so connected to media and to the internet and to radio and music, well, not so much radio, but maybe um, just music in general, Spotify or things like that. Um, TV, cartoons, memes, um, and things like that, that it will be increasingly important that the language has a presence in those places and in those media. So yeah, I think that's a big factor. I think the Cherokee Nation has begun to take steps at addressing some of those things. There's a cartoon series called Inagei in the Woods um, that has really adorable cartoon animals uh, that speak Cherokee. And uh, the cartoon is in nothing but Cherokee. Unfortunately, um, I think only two or three episodes have been released so far. and I may have seen the first one, but that's it. So I'm not sure exactly what the progress is on that. And I, I did hear that they've recently released a CD or an album of Cherokee language music that's sort of contemporary music, like pop stuff, mm -hmm. um, which I think will be very helpful. And I hope that's a trend we can continue to see moving forward. I think one of the greatest challenges, though, going forward for most people is going to be learning the language because mm -hmm. um, when you have a situation where people are already speakers, but they're afraid to speak it, that's mm -hmm. a different kind of challenge to overcome than when they're not speakers at all. Right. Yeah. So then you have first language English speakers talking to first language English speakers and trying mm -hmm. to have their conversation in both of their L2. And mm -hmm. um, that tends to get a little precarious because both people probably have a tendency to fall back on their first language when things get a little tough. I know mm -hmm. I certainly do. Um, and uh, I think a lot of it is mental and emotional. You know, it's like, can mm -hmm. we just agree mutually that we're going to do this together? Maybe it doesn't feel like the most natural thing in the world, but can we just agree that we're going to do it and mm -hmm get over the sort of sense of silliness or embarrassment that we might feel about it because it's necessary for the future of our language. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and it's been done before, right? I mean, the Hawaiians and the Maori have a really amazing record of language revitalization. Mm -hmm. um, modern Hebrew is, of course, sort of the gold standard 
of this, millions of native speakers of a language that was functionally mm-hmm. dormant since, you know, 2000 years ago or something like that. And now there's mm-hmm. a fully articulated modern version of it. Um, so we know it can be done. It's just, how do we go about overcoming these hurdles? Stay tuned in our next episode to hear from a rising star in the Irish language film industry and how she too is introducing her native tongue to the next generation. And if you'd like to see more about Dr. Fry and Dr. Becker's project with artist Josh Rousey, check out the fantastic documentary linked in the description below. That's all she wrote. Thanks for joining us this time on Common Era. Gurumagwe Vagislanagwe Vaharjath.